0: And then Titus 1, verse 5. So the first passage is from 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she shall be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Titus chapter 1 verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put away what, put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it.
1: I let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we come to your word, uh, we pray um, for the things that we're going to talk about um, tonight. God, for one, we pray uh, that you would open your word to us, that we would see um, your word um, with eyes that are seen through the light of the Holy Spirit, um, that you would illuminate this text, and, and God, not only that we would understand it rightly, but you would apply these things to our hearts. Um, God, we pray um, for elders to be called in this church. God, that you would work um, to raise up elders um, uh, here amongst us. Um, God, that you would mature us, that you would grow us, that you would give us hearts for uh, ministry and for service, um, that you would uh, make us recognize uh, the importance and and the, the goodness and the nobility of the task um of leading your people, um, but also um, the difficulty and the cost and and um, what is required of someone who does that. But, God, we ask um, that you would, um, God, work in us in such a way that we would, um, God, have people who uh, seek after the task um and the role of eldership and that um are qualified for it and then we as a congregation recognize that and, and entrust those people with leadership. God helps to do that, helps to grow as a church um in all these different ways, help us to grow in our depth and and knowledge of you. Help us to grow in our holiness um, uh, and in our character. Help us grow in in the care that we show for those around us. But God, also grow us in terms of leadership um, so that we could serve uh, you faithfully and live our lives in a way that honors you in the community. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for this time and for your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, we're going to kind of be mainly um, looking in um, 1 Timothy chapter 2. That's going to kind of be our home base, and then we'll kind of touch on Titus a little bit um, towards the end. Um, But uh, like I was talking about last week, we're sort of breaking these next few um, weeks down in in terms of talking about um, the 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 role of eldership in the church that elder overseer and then again we put in kind of parentheses pastor role in in the in the church um, we talk about these different things that we see in terms of 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 um, God's calling of those people and we've sort of split them into these three different sermons um, we're talking about the idea that one there's a there's a personal desire piece of it right um, it is something that we aspire to um, Timothy tells us and so it's something that has to be there there has to be a recognition and a desire in the will of the, of, of the individual, and they want to seek after this eldership. Um, but second, and what we're going to talk about today, is the biblical qualifications for that. It can't just be about desire. There are biblical qualifications that say who can be an elder and who can't be. And then next week, we're going to kind of talk a little bit more about this idea of, of um, the community um, calling this person and entrusting this person with leadership and recogni- recognizing um, their leadership through different kinds of testing and stuff. And so today we're going to look at those qualifications, and we're going to break it down into four kind of uh, characteristics, okay? Um, we are going to look at the, the fact that an elder should be a man. He should be a person of certain character. He should be a person who has a certain skill or gifting set. And then also that they, in a, in a sense, should be a person who has um, a certain status, um, and, and we'll talk about what that is, and then we're going to finally talk about this idea that the person should have a certain kind of reputation. All right, So let's kind of dig in and see what we have. So when you start in that first uh, Matthew section, Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve... And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So obviously Paul is referencing back to the story in, in, in the Garden of Eden. Um, and I think if, we will, if, we'll be, if we'll allow ourselves to read this passage straightforwardly, it, it teaches, it's, its teaching is pretty obvious, right? The scriptures teach that women are excluded from the role of being an elder because they are excluded from teaching and having authority over men in the church. All right, the language is pretty—I would say—unambiguous, right? And 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 if we read it honestly, we see what it has to say. Paul is speaking about the church to the church. First off, that's important. Okay, I don't believe that he is speaking about the role of women in society or government or education or anything like that. Okay. So even though some people in the history of the church have thought that, um, that this was excluding women from all roles of leadership anywhere, I don't think that's what's going on. Paul is talking about the church to the church. Okay. And he's talking about leadership in the church. Um, So he says women should not teach or exercise authority over a man. And I think those two things are connected, right? They're not just individual ideas. They are a connected idea because that's essentially what the role of elder is doing. And it's two main functions. It is to teach and it is to exercise authority. And what we have to recognize, importantly, right, is that God is not saying this because women are any less of something, Okay, it's not because they're incapable of leadership for some reason in the church. It's not because they're not smart enough or not skilled enough or not gifted enough. It's not because of a knot, right? None of that is why this is going on. Okay, it's not because they're less anything than men. Okay, it's because God has ordained these roles. God has designed them. God has given us a template. Um, He has created the architecture and the engineering of how this whole thing should sit and be lined up and function. Um, Right? And he basically says, here's the design. Now, I want you to build churches according to the schematics, you could say, that I've given you. Right? And so we recognize that eldership in the church is something that God calls men to. Now, you'll notice something as we come to that that second line, that 13 and 14. Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay? Now, um, there's a lot of stuff we could say about those passages, and people disagree about the context of what exactly is he getting at. Why does he reference um, um, Eve's uh, deceptive, the, the fact that she was deceived? Like, is this saying that somehow Eve's... Uh, that her role is, is a function of being a punitive kind of thing, that essentially it's sort of like her punishment throughout history um, to be a part of, of um, to, to not have that leadership or whatever. And we could go into a lot of different things there, okay? But I'm not going to today. But this is what I do want you to notice about that passage. When Paul says, here's the reason why women cannot be elders in the church, he doesn't address... The situation in Ephesus at the time. He doesn't address Greco-Roman standards of culture. He doesn't address first century issues of the way men and women interact with each other. What are his reasons? He goes back to creation and goes back to the fall. Okay? He goes back to the very nature of humanity found first in the way God made us, and second, in what we have become because of our our falling into sin and, and the falling of, of mankind in general, okay? That's important, because typically the argument that you hear when you get to this is you go, no, 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 Paul's writing to a certain context, right? And that context was not universal. They had specific problems in Ephesus, and that's not our situation, so we don't have to listen to that passage. That would make sense if Paul had said the reason why women should not teach or have authority is because here in Ephesus you've got a tradition of women-only leadership in the temples and yada, yada, yada. And so since it's all jacked up here, I don't want y'all to do that. Only men can be leaders here. But that's not what he does, right? He says, since creation and since the fall, these things are instituted. Okay, so it's just part of our nature. It's part of who we are. Men are called to elder leadership in the church, Right. If women are not supposed to teach or have authority over a man, then again, it's hard to understand how they could possibly be elders. It would be hard for us to understand any way in which they could act out the elder role in a congregation if they're not allowed to teach or have authority over a man. Okay. So that's the first qualification for an elder, is to be a man. All right. The second thing that we notice in, in this section in Timothy is that There are these 11, um, and depending on how you count them and wiggle room and how the words are translated and different things, but there's about 11 character traits, right, character aspects that Timothy lists. Titus overlaps some of those traits, And repeats them. But then he adds a couple of his own in there that are kind of general traits as well. And most of them are pretty straightforward. Um, There's some overlap in the words even themselves, like two words can almost mean the same thing in a couple places, and we'll see that in a second. Um, But the deal is, is this. They begin to paint a picture of the kind of person we're looking for in terms of elder leadership. Okay, so again, First Timothy three, looking at one through seven about. Okay, so the first off, he says that this this person must be above reproach. All right, so what that means is no serious. Credible accusations about the person, right? It doesn't mean that anybody couldn't say something about them because even Jesus was accused of things, right? And so there's the, the famous place where, you know, Jesus is accused and he says, you know, when I, when I celebrate with you, you call me a drunkard. And when I'm mournful, you say that I'm demon-possessed, right? And, like, I can't win with you people. They're always accusing him of something, But he's not guilty of any of it. And that's what it's talking about. So it's not saying that nobody could ever make an accusation against you. It's that no one could make a serious or a credible accusation against you. Um, so some a person above reproach, two that person has to be a husband of one wife. all right This is again a passage that 's debated by a lot of people. all right Does that passage indicate that you can never have been divorced right because if you have had more than one wife through the process of divorce, does that disqualify you from um, from being an elder? And The answer is possibly, but I think probably it is pointing towards the idea of being a faithful husband. Uh, um, in in your current context, right? It's about the idea of currently being a one woman kind of man, okay? A husband of one wife. That you are not um, seeking after other women. That you're not visiting prostitutes. That you're not having affairs. That you don't have mistresses. That that's you're a one woman kind of man, okay? I think that's probably what it's getting at. It's pointing toward toward a character character trait of of marital um, and relational and sexual fidelity in your life, okay? Three. The person is sober-minded, right? So other words that are sometimes translated there, temperate, or showing moderation, or showing self-restraint. Alright, and it goes along with the next word, which is self-controlled. Okay, which sometimes is actually translated being of sound mind. Okay, and those, you think those words kind of get almost crossed over in their meaning. Sober minded, self-controlled, right? You're balanced. You don't fly off the handle about things. You think rightly. Your, your life is organized in terms of the life of the mind and the, of your desires and things like that. Five kind of ties in with it too. You're respectable. Okay, that word is literally translated orderly. Okay, so your life is orderly, right? If your life is a train wreck all the time, then the Bible's probably saying this. Hey, man, maybe this isn't the time for eldership right now, right? Maybe you should work on these other things and try to get some of those things in place in your life um, before you move forward and seek after the role of eldership. You have a respectable, orderly life, okay? Um, Six, hospitable. Alright, and this is a key one. Remember what we talked about months and months ago about what the difference between hospitality and fellowship, okay? Fellowship is what we have with believers, like people, friends, family members. That's fellowship. We use the word wrong, but hospitality is not shown to friends, even though we say it that way all the time. Hospitality means love of strangers, okay? It can even, at the root of it, that hos word in it, that goes back to the Latin, which means enemy, okay? So hospitality is about loving your enemies, okay? So when we talk about hospitality, we're saying you have to be the kind of person who welcomes the stranger. You have to be the kind of person who loves even those people who are not on your team, all right? If you want to be an elder, right? It's not about throwing pretty parties. That's not what hospitality is about. That's what we've made it about. It's not. It's about welcoming outsiders, okay? So again, if you're an excessively shy or an excessively private person, right If you were a person who didn't like people getting into your space and into your time, then eldership probably wouldn't be for you, right? Just wouldn't be that, that where you should um, seek to, to serve God and use your giftings, okay? Eight, not a drunkard, okay? Literal translation would be not given over to wine, all right? So here's the deal, and this is important. Listen to me. This is not just about addiction, all right? Because that's what people want to do. Oh, yeah, he's talking about you can't be an alcoholic and be uh, be a, a elder. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying you cannot be a drunk, okay? Which means you cannot get drunk. You can't go about your life indulging in alcohol and other altering substances and still live as an elder. You can't do your job rightly. You can't be represented rightly in the community because of those things, right? Someone who allows alcohol to get the best of them, even if that isn't um, something that happens all the time, right? Right? You say, oh man, it's, it's not a big deal, right? I only get drunk on the weekends, or I only get drunk at... Special occasions, or I only get drunk at holidays. You're disqualified. Okay, you can't do that. That's something that doesn't line up with elder leadership, right? And I'm going to be honest with it. I mean, again, we are a. I, I'm a more tolerant person of alcohol than my Baptist forebears. Okay, because I don't think you can find in the scriptures an absolute prohibition against alcohol. I just, I don't see it. Right. But here's the thing. You know what we usually do? You got the, the teetotalers over this side and you go, I don't want to be a teetotaler. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be this guy over here who says, you can just do whatever you want to pretty much, right? Drink and get drunk and it's fine. And you can, you can live that way. As long as it doesn't get out of control and ruin your life, it's fine. And the answer is wrong. You can't one, you can't do that biblically. And two, you certainly can't do that as an elder. Okay. And so I don't want to reject legalism to embrace liberality, right? That's not what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable people, which might not exclude alcohol completely, but it would certainly exclude drunkenness completely. All right? So he who has ears, let him hear. Um, nine. Nine. Not violent, okay? I love this one because, or or some places say, not pugnacious. The word literally means not a striker, right? I mean, that's great. Like, you can't be a striker if you're going to be an elder, okay? You can't just punch people, okay? And that's a little bit of a slang kind of way of saying it, but essentially it's saying this. Do you solve problems by force? Right. Physical or otherwise. Right. Are you a bully? Do you coerce people into things? Right. I I was uh, knew of a pastor who basically every time he wanted to do something big and important in the church, he would present it to the congregation. Then he would say, listen, if you guys don't get on board with this thing, I quit. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna serve in a church that won't follow me. So either you get on board with this, or, or I'm gonna leave. Right? And the people would go, well, good grief, we don't want to go through the hassle of getting a whole new pastor. So I guess we got to get on board with this thing. Right? That guy was a striker. If he, even if he didn't know it, okay, he was forcing his uh, his his rule and his opinions on things by, in a violent way. All right. And so again, it, it, you're you're not looking for a fight all the time. Okay. On the contrary, it says not violent, but gentle. Right? You are equitable. You are yielding. You are looking to make a situation the best for everybody involved, right? That is countercultural. In our culture, right? Because that's not the way men act. That's not the way leaders act. Leaders aren't peacemakers. They're people who drive through and push something home and, and and exert their will on people. They're not gentle. Sissies are gentle. Not according to the scriptures, right? Jesus was gentle. The Bible calls leaders to be gentle, right? We want hardcore people that don't take any garbage, right? Eldership means you're going to have to take a lot of garbage. Okay? You're going to have to come alongside people and work with people and deal with issues and recognize they're growing in a process. And man, you want them to be someplace and they're not there yet. And then you try to get them there and they're still not there yet. And it's a process, right? And it can't be forced. You have to be, you can't be violent. You have to be gentle. And then 11, he says this, not quarrelsome, right? So guess what? That means abstaining from a fight. Not only are you not looking for a fight, but you're not looking for an argument, Right, you're not somebody who's just always wanting to pick. Okay, I, again, I know, and I can be a little argumentative at times. I recognize that, right? But I know pastors who maybe you can't talk to them without them correcting and saying, "No, nope, it's all wrong. Let me tell you what the way things really are, or whatever." Right? Um, that's not the way we're supposed to be. We're not always supposed to be just looking for a fight and an argument. Um, I've always liked the phrase that, that there are a lot of Christians who are known more for what they hate than for what they love, right? Man, I don't want. To, that's not the kind of person we're talking about. Elders are supposed to be people who are known for their loves, not just for what they're against, even though there are certainly times when we have to be against things, right? So it's not talking about being wishy-washy or a pushover or being um, weak and unsure in our beliefs, but it is saying you don't have to fight about everything, right? You shouldn't be looking for a fight. Just for the record, the fact that we should be gentle and not quarrelsome, social media has demonstrated that most of us are disqualified from being elders, right? Um, Or that we have a lot of growing to do, okay? Social media has been the example to say, "Eh, you're not where you think you are, okay? Because you are definitely quarrelsome and not gentle in these things. All right, and then 12, last one for Timothy, he says, not a lover of money, right? If you're in leadership in the church for money, um, if you are motivated by greed or by fin- financial gain or something like that, um, you're in the wrong place, okay? And again, man, I saw this video this week about, you know, the the TV pastors that have two $40 million planes, right? And, and then to watch them just sort of justify it and talk about how, no, this is just... I'm just, you know, this my life. I'm just blessed, you know, or whatever. And just you go, man, something's wrong, right? There are people who should be disqualified from ministry because it seems to be the case um, that they are in it at least partially because of their love of money. All right? That's the qualifications in Timothy. Titus adds a couple more general traits, repeats some of the ones that Timothy has said. He also says you must not be arrogant, Right? Arrogant can also be translated self-pleasing or self-interested, right? You're only thinking about your own self in a lot of these things. Guys, you remember a couple or last week or two weeks ago, whenever when I talked about the free agency nature of the church, right? And we have this goofy system where it's like, man, we're just out there, you know, uh, running around like football players trying to find a team who will give us the most money. We've created that system. And we have created a system in which we have to be, almost, arrogant, self-pleasing, self-interested people, right? You've got guys who are looking for ministry jobs and thinking about stepping up to the next level, stepping up to the next paycheck and stuff like that, when maybe the case is, is that we got a broken system and it shouldn't work like that. It's not the way we should be doing things, and it's no wonder that it ends up looking like that, breeding arrogance and self-pleasing and self-interest because we've created a system that does that. Not arrogant but a lover of good, okay? Not just not doing bad things, but right, being a lover of good, that's different than just not being doing bad things, okay? Um, None of us love what is good to the extent that we should, right? None of us love um, what is good completely, and yet there should be a general disposition like that to the person's life. The person is upright, Titus says, which kind of ties into that respectable idea. He is holy, And we could talk about holiness in different contexts, being set apart, being pure, being righteous. And and fifth, he is disciplined, okay? Like if you can't manage... If you can't get it together on some things, right, if you just are always slipping on certain stuff, then maybe you need to say, cool, it doesn't mean God doesn't love me. It just means that I shouldn't be an elder right now, right, because I've got some work to do in my own life in in prioritizing and making time for these things and whatever, okay? So, again, obviously we could discuss each of those in greater depth. We could probably do a sermon on each one of them and be and and go through this for weeks and weeks and months. But what I want you to notice is this. The majority of what God is looking for in elders is character traits, okay? He is not looking primarily for skills. He's not looking for people who can do things a certain way. He's looking for people who are something. Who, he's looking for being characteristics, not doing characteristics primarily, okay? And again, we get into a lot of trouble in the church and have over the last, say, 50 years when we have looked at people out in the, in the business world and said, that guy's successful. That guy knows how to run a business. Certainly he can run the church. And so then he comes and tries to run the church. I'm not saying that people from the business world shouldn't lead in some cases, but they're a different skill set. Okay? We're not just talking about, oh, cool, he can manage personnel rightly, therefore he'll be a good pastor. There's more to it than that. In fact, that's not even one of the things that's necessary, although it certainly could be helpful in a lot of places. Most of it is about character. God is looking for men who have been changed by Christ and are being conformed to Christ. That's what he's looking for, okay? However, there is one skill, at least, that is necessary, and that is, Timothy tells us, he has to be able to teach, okay? He has to be able to teach. The task of teaching is intricately connected, intricately linked to the elder role. Okay? And again, that's the reverse justification why women cannot be elders. Because if they're not allowed to teach men, then you've eliminated half your congregation um, if you have if you have women elders. Elders teach. That's what they do, right? There's one skill they have to have and one task they have to perform. It is the task of teaching. Does it specify what kind of teaching? No, it doesn't. And so probably we should not try to force um, that that teaching word into our own category. So maybe it's the context of preaching from a pulpit. Maybe it's lecturing. Maybe it's Bible studies. Maybe it's leading a personal discipleship. You know, it could be lots of different kind of contexts, okay? But they must be able to teach, and I would argue they must teach, right? We we sometimes will do this thing in churches where we say, "Well, well, he could teach if he wanted to, but he's not going to, and he never does. And I go, I don't think that's right. I think you should be exerting that gift Um, In some way, shape, or form, okay? And so Titus actually clarifies what we're getting at when we talk about teaching a little bit. If you look in Titus verse 9, chapter 1 verse 9. Titus says this person, this elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Okay? So he has to hold firm to this word that's been handed down to him. That means he knows it. He understands it. He has a solid grasp on it. And then it says, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Right? So what does that mean? Tell it to other people. Explain it clearly. Like, convey the, the, the content and the nature of the gospel and God's word to other people rightly, okay? That's necessary to be an elder. And then lastly, and also to rebuke those who contradict it, right? So that means generally defend the Christian faith against not only insiders but outsiders, right? Both sets of people. Because there are going to be people in the church who are either because of their immaturity or because of their rebellion, are going to buck what the Word says. And it's the job of the elder to come in and say, that is incorrect, um, that is wrong, you are understanding this wrong, and, and you need to be rebuked or corrected in this situation. And then it's also to defend that in in terms of the, the outside the church, right? To be able to talk to outsiders and say, this is what the Christian faith looks like, and this is what it means, and this is how we understand it, okay? And so so you see... A bunch of character traits, a bunch of character issues, and then this one skill that is necessary. But you also notice a couple other things. That's not the end of the the story. That's not the end of the picture. There are also what we, and I don't know a good way to say it, but these status qualifications that I think are there too, okay? There are a certain situation in life that you should be in to be an elder, okay? And the first one is this. You can't be a new believer. Alright. So it says that pretty clearly in verse six. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemn- the condemnation of the devil. Right? So I think that was pretty straightforward when, when you read it, right? And it makes sense, too, that the character and knowledge and tested experience and ability to teach are probably things that require some time. And probably the case is, is that if you just became a Christian, If you were a new believer, there's no way you could be there yet. There's just not any way you could, even if you look like you have, okay. And so it doesn't give a specific time frame. You know, I was talking with some of you guys this week, and I was kind of like, well, what does it mean to not be a new believer, right? Is six months new? Is a year new? Is a decade new? Like, you know, sometimes like I look at, I I learn things, and I go, good grief, man, how did I not know this? I've been doing this for you know, 25 years. How did I not understand that until now? I don't, I don't know what a new believer, what that is, right? We can't, we can't put a number on it, but at least gives us some, some guidelines, right? If somebody, um, and, and, and there's a, there's a precedent of this in some Baptist churches, which is something that is goofy. Um, sometimes people would show up and, It happens in some places. On the same day they are saved, they go, I feel a call to be a pastor. And then there would be an ordination right there in the same service. So the guy got saved, professed his faith, and became a pastor like all in 30 minutes, okay? That's goofy. And wrong, and that shouldn't ever happen. And yet you see that sometimes. Why do you see that? Well, it ties into what we talked about last week. If your subjective feeling of a calling is the only thing that classifies you as a pastor, then who is the congregation to say that you're wrong, right? If you say, "Well, I feel like God's called me to be a pastor," well, what do we know? We're just the church who have the word of God. I guess this guy says he's going to be a pastor, so let's make him a pastor today, right? That's dumb. Okay, and and we're specifically told don't do that. All right, so so this person has to be somebody who has been a believer for 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 a while. Um, it takes time. Sanctification takes time. Testing takes time. Uh, all these things take time. Moreover, being it says put in a leadership as a novice. In the faith causes problems, man. It just, it causes problems. It says, Paul tells us that it tends the individual towards conceit and arrogance, right? They suddenly feel like, oh, well, I've been elevated to this position and I'm brand new and now I can start bossing people around or, or whatever. They don't understand what the sacrifices of leadership cost yet, right? And so, like, I have said this uh, uh, to a number of times at, at Mother Church, right? So they didn't ordain me. I was a functional pastor at that church for a decade or more, but I was not an ordained pastor. And a lot of people would come up and say, man, why is that? And the truth is, is I'm not exactly sure why. Um, there were some different reasons for it. But on one side, I think it was right, okay, because that the church shouldn't have ordained me. Um, right when I got there right I showed up and I had been a kid who had come occasionally to their church over the course of my childhood I showed up for about six months and helped with the youth Right, and then I disappeared and gone to seminary. They didn't know me They didn't know what I believed or what I taught or any kind of thing about me And so what essentially happened is they said, all right, we're gonna we're gonna kind of ease you into this thing, right? And we're gonna give you some opportunities and you may blow it and you may do something that completely disqualifies you or you might prove that that you are worthy of this um, and that you have been c- called to this and that you are living a life that is in line with this and then we'll ordain you okay and so I don't I think that's a good thing um, I spent and it's weird to say I spent 13 years in ministry functionally before I was ordained and I think that's not a bad idea okay and um, because you can get goofy, pretty early. Man, what did I know at 25 years old? I didn't know anything. Who was, what, what reason would I have had to, uh, it's crazy. Anyway, sorry. Um, I'm just, I'm just sort of thinking in my own head now. Um, not only is it bad for the individual, man, it's bad for the congregation, right? Um, how many times, and I'm looking at y'all because I know some of you and I've known you for a long time, right? Um, I'll say Adam Morell and just call him out from, from up here because he's had conversations with me where he said, Hey man, sorry about that. Right? Just these young bucks dudes you are like 18 and they're like I know how Christianity works we should burn this thing to the ground and start over and build it back up because we know what needs to be done and you're like hey man Just calm down a little bit, okay? Like let's 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 kind of see see what happens. And guess what? And again, like Adam came back to me years later and said, Man, I'm glad that you didn't just go with that. (laughs) Like you didn't just help me start a revolution, because I was eighteen and I was stupid. And I'd just seen a couple of things and thought, I know how this thing whole thing works now. And and we don't, none of us do, right? And so what happens is you see this that energy that we have when we're a new believer, and that passion and that drive and that excitement all of a sudden, that will do one of two things. It will either temper you or it will consume you, right? And it is the job of the church to say, we're not putting you in a leadership position. Because if, if you do and you have that kind of energy, it's going to eat you alive, right? It's going to destroy you and probably a lot of lives around you, all right? So you can't be a new believer, all right? Second situation, and this is the one that I get a lot of arguments from, from different people, is I think you have to have a family, okay? You have to be a family man, There is in my mind, though admittedly, most people don't agree with me, okay? Which should put some warning lights up in my head, right? Okay, when I think something and I go, I know what the Bible says, and then I look around at every wise person I know and they go, you're wrong, dude. That should put some warning signs up, okay? But but just just hear me out for a second. I think having a family and managing that family well is a prerequisite for eldership in the church, okay? So first, having a family, and B managing that family rightly, okay? So again, some people would say, well, what about Paul, Ash? What about Jesus? If that's the case, then neither of those guys could be elders in our church, okay? And I would respond, A, Jesus is God, and so I'm not worried about his qualifications, okay? I'm not worried if if he can manage people and has the character and ability to be an elder. He doesn't count. And then here's the other thing. Paul, we don't know that Paul didn't have a family. Okay? In fact, there are various places in Scripture that point to the possibility, if not the probability, that Paul was married at one time. That maybe he had been widowed at this point. And so he may have had a family and had children and done this whole process already and was at a different stage of life now. Okay? And so that that's not an argument. It's an argument from silence, I would say, to point to guys like that. But let's just do some Instead of doing deductive reasoning, let's talk about like we've been talking about upstairs before church. Inductive reasoning, okay? Let's just read the passage. And so Paul says to Timothy, verse 4, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? right? It seems to be the case just by reading that, that marriage and family are the proving ground, you could say, of your ability to manage and shepherd a flock. Okay. In this case, a little flock, right? A flock of one, two, three, five, or if you know, you're one of these people just keeps on having them, 10 people, whatever, that's fine. But you can manage your own little flock and that it, at least that, if it's not necessary, at least it is the norm, right? Um, and if it's not the norm, then there's no reason for that passage to be there, right? Like, I'm going to tell you, I read a lot of guys that I respect a whole lot, and as soon as you read that line, the first thing they say about it is, this certainly doesn't mean that men who are single can't be elders. And I'm like... I mean, it seems like it does. Like, you gotta give me a pretty good reason if that's not the case. And nobody gives a good reason. Their, their basic reason is, well, that's not the way we do things. We send guys to seminary and Bible college at 18, and they get out and they have to be a pastor somewhere, and they're not married yet sometimes. What are we gonna do about that? And the answer is, maybe not do that anymore, but, but whatever, you know. Um, it, it seems like there's something there, right? So again, is it impossible that a man could be um, a, an elder and have proved his managerial and shepherding ability without having a family? I can imagine some scenarios maybe right like possibly he has he has led a group of men, a small group or a Bible study or a Sunday school or something like that, and acted as a pastor and, and stuff like that maybe right, but I think it at least says the norm, the average way the typical way that God not only proves your, te- your, your uh, ability to shepherd um, not only the norm, but, the, but, but the, the, the best way to do that is through having a family. Now, so that's having a family. What does it mean to manage a family well? <laughs> what does that entail? So are we talking about like lockstep, regimental, disciplined family, whatever? I hope not. Man, I hope not. Okay, because I'm in a lot of trouble if that's the case. All right. Um, Last week we were standing here and Ashley was sitting down here and like I was making some comment and James comes running through here like some kind of crazy person. He runs across the stage and, and I said, James, stop running, stop running. He didn't hear me at all, didn't listen, didn't care, just kept on running past. And I looked at Ashley and I was like. I'm sort of talking about how you're supposed to be able to manage your family well next week, so this may be a problem. Before the words come out of my mouth, India comes the other way. And I'm like, India, stop. And she's like, and she just kept on going. And I was like, this doesn't bode well, okay? So um, are we talking about the fact that my kid running past me um, in church, that that means I, I can't manage my family well? Well, I don't think so. And here's part of the reason why I think that, because you look at how Titus describes this situation. OK, Titus says this in verse one through uh, one six, he says, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. OK, now I'm going to tell you a couple of different ways that I think the normal way we read this passage is not correct. OK, because typically what we do when we read that passage is we say, cool, man, once your kids are old enough to be out on their own, they're not your responsibility anymore. Okay, They're not your kids, they're on their own life, so that doesn't count. So if you've got grown kids who are out there living in open godlessness and rebellion, that's not on you as a pastor. We're talking about within your household, that's the kind of situation, the deal. And and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't think it includes, I I mean, I don't think that's the case. I think this is talking about broad picture of our families, Okay. Um, We're talking about children again, not who are living just kind of like who are running in church, right? But what does it say? People, children who are living in debauchery and insubordination, okay? Debauchery has that idea of, it's often connected with drunkenness, but it's sort of this reckless, rootless rebellion, right? Like open uh, disregard for the things of God, okay? That's what debauchery is. And then insubordination, right? Literally rebellion, defiance of parents, community, church, even the law typically, right? That's what it looks like, this kind of person, okay? Essentially what it's asking is saying this, it's concerned with somebody being able to come and look at a church and look at that pastor and go, man, that pastor sure seems like a good guy and a godly man, but man, have you seen his kids? Like they are running wild out here, okay? That's a problem, all right? Now, listen to me, I say that with fear and trepidation. All right. Because I recognize the fact that my children could literally at this church cost me my job in the coming years. Right. If my kids embrace that kind of lifestyle in 10 years or whatever, when they're a little bit older, um, that could mean that I would be disqualified from eldership. And I recognize that reality. Okay, And so I'm not saying that would. this is as, as just sort of like a pious kind of thing. Right. I recognize the stakes that are here. Um, this could cost me my job and livelihood and ministry and all of these things. And it wouldn't be an easy decision either, right? Um, and churches oftentimes are put through this ringer on situations like this, right? And again, you might think that that is unfair. You might say, Man, it's not fair that... Ash, you would be held responsible for your 25-year-old kid's life decisions, okay? But that leads us to this last little characteristic, this last qualification, and that is this, reputation. The last qualification that I think we see all encompassed in this passage is an emphasis on reputation. So notice Timothy's qualifications. They're bookended by this functionally the same characteristic in verse 2 he says this person must be above reproach It means nobody on the outside can make credible claims against this person okay and then verse 7 closing it out says moreover he must be thought well of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil all right Reputation is the last thing. And I think that's part of what all these things are pointing to, right? Even the character traits are pointing to this idea that the community can look to a person and say, man, this guy's not a crazy person. He's not a godless person. He's not a person who's ruled by his passions. He's not a person who is um, unable to control his life and his desires, right? Um, he is a respectable, orderly um, Person above reproach, all right? The way both outsiders and insiders think about us and perceive us, that's central to the qualification of being an elder, right? And so you go, so some of y'all are aware of the uh, uh, Preachers and Sneakers. Anybody, anybody made the scene the Preachers and Sneakers thing? There's this Instagram handle, and it's called Preachers and Sneakers. And somebody takes a picture of a pastor from one of their, like, uh, promo pictures or, like, on their Facebook, but then they zoom in on their shoes, and then they show you what kind of shoes those are and how much they cost. Woo! And then what happens is like, so you find out some of these guys are wearing $3,500 pairs of shoes. Um, they're wearing, you know, these limited edition Kanye West, Nike, whatever nonsense, okay? And it's, and they've got these shoes that are, that are thousands of dollars, right? Now, I'm not really concerned about your shoes, okay? But this is what I would say about that. It recognizes this fact, is that people are looking at you, right? And they are judging your heart, and your motives, and your desires, and what's important to you, by not just your shoes. Certainly your shoes are the least important thing. That's why that, that handle is kind of funny. Like it's just funny to look and go, well, you know, that dude's got $400 shoes, right? I got mine at, The garage sale or whatever, yeah, right? So so it's funny to look at that, okay? Because, again, most of us could probably go, man, a person's shoes probably don't tell their heart and their character, right? But it does point us to something. The world's looking, right? The world is always looking. And you know what our typical thing is? What we want to do is we go, well, cool, let them look. I don't care what other people think about me, right? You don't get the luxury of not caring what people think about you if you're an elder, and that's the deal. You don't get to be a person who says, I don't care what people think. You have to care what people think. Not in a goofy teenage girl in middle school kind of way where you're just always like, oh my gosh, what I hope everybody likes me. Not that kind of thing, right? But you have to care about the fact that people trust you. Okay? And you want to know why? Because if you're a shepherd and your sheep don't trust you, you know what they tend to do? They tend to wander off and they tend to get killed right and that's not what you're here for if you're a, if you're an elder if you're a shepherd you're supposed to be guiding these people and bringing new people into the flock and if people perceive you in a negative way then that's not going to happen okay we don't have the luxury of not caring what people think. Reputation is central, I would say, to all these other characteristics even in this thing, okay? Do we all fall short of that? 100%. There's not a single person who you could even say is worthy completely of eldership, right? Okay? Nobody is that. I'm not that, right? It doesn't take long for people to point out my shortcomings in, in life and in ministry, right? And what I hope the case is, is when I see those shortcomings, I say, you're right, that's wrong, uh, that's sinful, or that's selfish or whatever I shouldn't do that And I should turn from that And acknowledge my sin And trust in Christ Okay um, I hope that's what I do But we have to see All these things coming together And so what It's, it's crazy man the, the, the qualifications for eldership Are pretty high And yet in many ways They are exactly what Jesus Is calling every single one of us to Right And so we are all called To be the kind of people Who could be elders and yet, that doesn't necessarily mean that every single one of us has to be or that um, we will end up being elders in these each of these situations. What I want to do is, I'm, I know I'm running over. I knew this one kind of be a long one. Um, I want to just stop and let's pray, okay? And what I want you to do is not only pray now, but continue to pray for this over the next coming weeks and months and however long it takes us, and probably all the time, because this isn't a process that we get finished, right? Like if God sends us four dudes to be elders in the next six months, we wouldn't look at that and go, well, cool, we got that handled. Now we can move on to something else. No, this is a process that God is doing in the life of a church at all times, continuing to grow people and mature people and and lead people. And and so that people come to a point where they step out and take up the mantle of leadership. And so I want you to pray. I just want you to pray that God would do this in our church, right? Um, just like, man, you notice that verse in Titus. Paul says, "Man, this is what I left you behind for, Titus. When I left you in Crete, your job was to go around to the different cities and find men who would step up and shepherd those congregations, right? That was Titus's whole job, right? That was, and it was, it was um, critical that that happened so that these new flocks that were popping up all over that island wouldn't be people just wandering around." um, imbibing the junk of the world, but they would have leaders who knew God's word and taught God's word and cared for God's people. So let's do that. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and just pray that he would send us those people that men would grow mature and step up in our congregation, um, to lead and shepherd us. Thank mm-hmm. you. Father God, we know um, that you want leaders for your church. We know that you want um, people um, placed um, not to to um, uh, domineer, um, not to um, push people around, not just so that they can get their way, but, God, you call people into servant leadership. You call people to lay down their lives for the flock. You call people to um, do the hard work and take the hard hits. Um, of of leadership in a congregation. God, we know that this is a function of the way you are maturing us, that this is the normal means by which you are sanctifying us and growing us and making us more like your son. But, God, we ask that you would um, impress upon us the goodness and the importance and the nobility of that task, um, that you would call men to step into that role, that you would um, make them recognize that this is worthy of giving their lives to and that um, they would do that that um, because they love you and because they love um, the people who they are gathered together with in this congregation. God, work in us. Grow us up. Grow us into the people that you've called us to be. We ask this in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.